This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Here's a question. Could you picture space if you had never seen an image of space? And think here not just of speckled dots against a pitch black background, but of the swirling gas clouds that have been captured by the Hubble Space Telescope and the colorful spiraling galaxies that are made palpable by the Chandra X-ray Observatory. For millions of people with severe visual impairments, of course, this isn't a hypothetical question. But are they the only ones who are missing out on a world in which the only way space is tangible is through images? What could we experience if we didn't limit the potential of understanding cosmic data to what we can see? Why not turn it into something that we can touch or something we can hear? Kimberly Arcand has spent her career creating new ways to help people see, touch, and hear the universe, using data to build 3D models of exploded stars and virtual reality to create high-energy astrophysics experiences, and more recently, an auditory experience that uses images from different telescopes as musical scores. The sonification of an image of the Milky Way, for instance, includes observations made with X-ray and infrared and optical images. And you can listen to each one separately or in harmony. Arcand is a data visualization scientist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she's always looking for a new way to tell science stories. This year, in addition to the Space Sonification Project, she released her first two children's books, the fictional An Alien Helped Me With My Homework and the parody Goodnight Exo Moon. Kim Arcand, welcome. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's great to be here. I think a lot of people recognize the limitations of our senses, right? We can't see an x-ray. We can't hear beyond a pretty limited range of frequencies. But maybe what we don't think so much about is that the ways in which we have chosen to experience things, like culturally, socially, and just sort of maybe by the the inertia of how we've always done things, this really places further limits on how we experience the world like most of us wouldn't think to try to see the call of a bird or or maybe closer to your work most people wouldn't think to try to touch the shape of a star how did you get involved in thinking about expanding our capacity to understand things in this way well i think it comes from two different areas and one is just where my work has been for the past couple of decades. I started working for NASA's Chandrax Observatory back in 1998 and when you are working with x-ray data of the universe, well, that's not something humans can ever see, right? So you have to be creative, I think, as to how you understand it and also how you represent it. But on a much more personal level, I'll be honest, I was super shy as a kid and didn't really make friends easy when I was really little. And one of my very first friends was a girl in kindergarten and she was deaf and she was teaching me sign language along with an instructor that she had with her who was teaching the other teachers how to do sign language. And that sort of 
opened up a new world for me, just being able to understand her language in that way and that she was so generous to share her time to teach me how to communicate with her. It's just something that that never left me. You mentioned you started working with the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which we should say is an orbiting telescope that is sensitive to very faint sources of electromagnetic radiation. Yes. You started doing this in the late 1990s. Yes. <laughs> this was even before the telescope had launched. Yes. Tell me about like being involved in a project where you're there before this thing even goes. And then like a month into this thing being in outer space, it started returning data, which were turned into images. What was it like to get those first pictures? It was pretty incredible. I will be honest, when you're part of a NASA mission in general, it's pretty exciting. But being there before it launches, there is just an intensity about the experience. You know, there are scientists, the engineers, the technologists who have dedicated so much of their lives to creating this technology. And they're going to strap something the size of a school bus onto a rocket and ship it up into space where it's going to go a third of the way to the moon, right? So too far to ever be fixed by human hands again, right? It can only ever be, quote, serviced through computer code. So yeah, that was a really intense, exhilarating, exciting part of this. I sort of learned what I wanted to do as I was experiencing all that. And the first images that we got, they were pretty incredible. Again, x-rays, right? Not something we can see with human eyes. So we build this telescope to detect it and we um, write software to then translate that information. And then we make choices as scientists, as technologists to represent it. So it really is a process that humans have to go through to take something that we can't see and translate it into some form that we can experience. And when did it occur to you? Was it before the telescope launch? Was it when these images started coming back that this process of translation could be facilitated in different ways? We could use the data to create something other than just images. It took me a while to realize that there were more opportunities than just the 2D images. And it probably wasn't until at least 10 years after launch that we started working with information in these new dimensions and these new modes. We had time-lapse data. Then we started working with 3D models. And then once we had a 3D model, actual observational data, in this case of an exploded star, well, that just <laughs> sort of lifted the floodgates. Like it it just made me realize how many different opportunities there were to not only understand the data, but to also communicate the data. And I've pretty much never looked back. I've just kept pursuing how many more ways can we translate this? How many more ways can we interpret this to make it more accessible, more approachable, more helpful? And when you mentioned this this 3D model of a dying sword, this isn't just something that's in a computer. You've actually printed this out. As I understand, the plans are online. People can print out this model of a dying star using a 3D printer. When you hold that thing in your hands, what is different for you? When you touch this tangible thing, rather than looking at a two-dimensional image of it, what changes in the way that you think about it? 
A few things, I guess. So this is something, it's an object called Cassiopeia A, and it's a star that exploded over 10,000 light years from Earth, right? So, so this thing is gone, right? It's gone. It's gone. But in its death, it's like a form of rebirth because that material then provides future generations of stars, planets, whatever, people with the necessary elements that they need. So it is really interesting to think about the scale, too, because... You know, it's about 40 million billion times the surface area of our sun and planets. It's very massive, some of these objects, right? So it's taking this concept that is massive and sort of intangible and then turning it into something, well, plastic and quite tangible. And it's a very different experience to consider that kind of data in a small format that you can fit in your hand. And I think that for me is a big part of it. It's just taking concepts and these topics that seem so esoteric perhaps and helping to just make them a little bit more approachable and certainly accessible. Does it beg questions that you wouldn't have thought to ask otherwise? Oh, for sure, for sure. So I think 3D modeling in astrophysics and other areas of science more broadly is a really important step or tool in the tool belt of scientists because you learn things when you study these 3D models. In the instance of Cassiopeia, this exploded star, this supernova remnant, you know, you're learning that when the star exploded, the iron that was at the innermost part of the core, well, it's now in the remnant uh, along the perimeter. It's, it's towards the outermost areas. So a star like Cassiopeia turns itself inside out when it explodes and you can trace the chemical elements as they are dissipating out into the universe and where they are. It's like a 3D map of that chemical information. And so so you learn things when you consider these, these models in a 3D space. And of course, when you can take that learning and make sure anyone can have access to it, whether they have sight or whether they're blind or low vision, I think to me, that's that's just one of the most important things. You've had an opportunity to put this model into people's hands. Tell me about, like, for instance, when a child holds this thing, what happens? <laughs> it really depends on the child. I would say the most profound reactions have definitely been with students who are either blind or low vision. And we worked with students through a National Federation of the Blind program to actually improve the 3D prints, for example, and some amazing bits of information we were able to glean from that experience just, you know, rocked my world. Like these 3D prints seem pretty straight up to me in a way, but after one 20 minute meeting with like a handful of students, we were just looking at them differently. And there were so many changes we were able to make based on their feedback, like cutting the models in half, which is great for everybody, right? So if you take this plastic 3D model of an exploded star, you cut it in half and embed some magnets so you can stick it back together. So that means you can access not only the outside of the remnant, but also the inside. Like it's so obvious in a way, right? But it was one of those many bits of wisdom that came out of that experience and that program. And I think that's kind of the point, right? It's about opening up access, but also exchanging of ideas and understanding people's experiences and using all that. That's the point of your most recent project with NASA as well, which employs sonification, turning data into sound. This is not unlike how a Geiger counter turns ionizing radiation into a sort of 
staticky, crackling and blippy soundscape. Where did this project originate? Well, actually, it sort of came about because of the pandemic. I had been working with some students at Brown University to take a virtual reality experience of, for example, exploded stars, a few different objects that we have now in the 3D space. And instead of just having it be a visual virtual reality experience, I wanted to add an audio component so that you could hear the changes in the remnant, for example, as you're maneuvering through this virtual reality space. And so we were working on and experimenting with this sort of attaching sound to this spatial environment, so like geospatial sound. And, you know, it was going fine, but then the pandemic hit and everybody had to go home and we didn't have access to the lab and the the equipment. And now I just felt sort of stuck because we were no longer able to have in-person events with many people in many different communities and particularly for communities of students and lifelong learners that are blind or low vision, 3D prints are not cheap. So it's not like you can mail a 3D print to everybody who could use one. So I was just trying to think of ways to take what we had learned with the virtual data sonification project and apply it into a simpler 2D space that I could just use, you know, over the internet. And I have these great collaborators from a group called System Sounds. It includes an astrophysicist and musician. His name is Matt Russo and a sound engineer. His name is Andrew Santaguida. And they have been working on and developing different techniques to translate data into sound over the past few years. And so we just sat down, virtually speaking, and just figured out what would be a good way to explore some of my data to take it into this new arena. And there are endless ways that you could do that, right? You could turn data into sound in all sorts of kinds of ways. Your team decided to take images from areas of space that we had x-ray and infrared and optical data for and scan those images like a musical score left to right. And in another case, you work from the center Mm -hmm. of an image outward. But, you know, you could have gone up and down. You could have translated the data into all sorts of different frequency patterns. I assume you and your team played with a lot of ways to bring these data to life. How did you settle on the ways that you settled on? Yes. So you're bringing up a great point. All of the possibilities that exist when you're working to translate data from one form to another, that exists even if you're working in creating an image, for example. So those same possibilities are there if you're working on sound or using haptic technology, you know, vibrational information. So yeah, this idea was to, of course, take the science story and faithfully represent that in another way than just a two-dimensional image. So the story essentially dictates the sound in a sense. But of course, the caveats are you need to make sure that it makes sense. You might approach something scientifically thinking a series of sounds grouped together will work, but then when you do it, it doesn't, right? There are times that it's just, it's not a perfect formula of A plus B equals C. It's not nearly so subjective as that. Like you have to figure out what's work and you have to figure out how to best represent the data. The data sort of speaks to you in a way. It sort of, you know, gives you these hints of what to do. 
to represent it and then you have to go with it but of course you have to be ready to fix anything that's not going to be you know aesthetically pleasing sound wise and of course we also do testing with it as well so if it doesn't make sense for a sample user we'll go back to the drawing board but yeah it's like a combination of applying our years of experience in creating different kinds of representations and years of experience in working with sound from Matt and Andrew and combining that to create something kind of new and honestly the response to it was incredible <laughs> just incredible what was it like for you when you first heard the finished product and i know that you had been part of the process all the way along so it wasn't like it was unveiling itself to you for the first time but once it was complete and you guys have decided and i presume you sat down and closed your eyes and listened to this thing what was that like Oh, I had chills. I really, truly had chills. And I was so excited. Like I started playing it for my kids, my husband. I started playing it for like some of my other collaborators that I worked on other projects with. And I'll be like, listen to this. Tell me what you think. I was just <laughs> so excited because it came out beautiful, I think. I mean, clearly I'm biased, but it just, the sound was truly beautiful to me. And to be listening to data that I had been looking at for so long. Cassiopeia, one of the examples that we've already talked about and was one of the first that we sonified, was one of the very first images I ever got to work with from Chandra. It was what it's called its first light. So it's like official, you know, opening image. And when I consider what that data looked like back in 1999 with just an hour of time, and now fast forward a couple decades and we have like 2 million seconds worth of information and we're bringing it into 3D and we're 3D printing it and now we're listening to it. It's just, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. This has got to make you think like, okay, so what else can I do? Because we can turn a 2D image into a 3D image and that sort of like, it makes sense as a procedural step, right? And then yeah. like, I guess you could say like, we can take data and turn it into sound because data can be translated into frequencies and frequencies are sound and that sort of makes sense. But I mean, like how far can we make data that we can taste? Can we make data that we can smell? How far are you willing to take this? I don't know if I'd want to either smell or taste an exploded star. It might be like licking a, a rusty iron pole. Who knows? Like I'm not, not really so much into that. However, um, we have actually since then applied haptic technology as well. So taken it and created an app with the sound that applies the vibrational information on a smartphone. So it tracks the intensity map across the image and you can feel the changes in intensity as well as hear them um, or see them. And it's just, it is very interesting to push this. Sometimes with this, it starts out as like a creative imagining. It's, it's a little bit of what I call, you know, grown up play. I'm like, what can we do with this and will it make it better? What can we learn from this? You know, who would be invested in this? Who might benefit from this and without having a very clear picture at the end we try some things out and see what happens and every time we've done that we've really we've been rewarded so it's hard not to want to keep pushing the envelope so to speak you mentioned earlier that you have worked with quite a few visually impaired people who 
got to experience the exploding star data through the 3D model. You've now had quite a few visually impaired people who've experienced these data through the sonifications. What has the response been like? The response has just been oh, so pleasing. I just, it absolutely makes me feel like this is worthwhile when I hear and get a response at how welcoming this type of project can make some people feel. Um, I don't want to speak for anybody from that community per se, but what I have been told in like the review process of some of the materials and like the early testing, it just reinforces the desire to do more because it's been so, so overwhelmingly positive and just makes me happy to do this. And the thing is, like with this most recent sonification project, it went viral very unexpectedly. And we had like over a million listens on SoundCloud within, I don't even know, maybe a week and a half. And it definitely reinforced the idea that if you take something and make it better for one community, that inevitably it makes it better for more than one community, for hopefully all communities. This gives us a different way to explore data. What does sonification offer us scientifically? You put this in front of a bunch of smart people in the lab. What, what do you think could come out of it? Well, truly, I have to go back to some earlier work. So Dr. Wanda Diaz, who is a friend of mine, she lost her vision when she was, I think, about 19 years old, perhaps, and she was studying astronomy. And she went on to complete her PhD in computer science and astronomy, kind of like the human-computer interactions. And her hypothesis was about sound. And can you listen to data of the universe, for example, and learn something new from it? Can you learn to be a better listener as a scientist? And the answer was yes. And I you know, should make a caveat that I'm hoping I'm representing her PhD work <laughs> faithfully. But um, the idea was that, yes, we can learn how to be a better listener, whether we're a scientist or not. And I just think there's a lot of potential in that that area. Like, how can we use the sense of sound to understand our data better? So, yeah, we need more researchers like Wanda and others who are doing that important work to be able to really pinpoint how can we use other senses to, you know, get the most uh, lemonade out of our lemons. This year, you published two books, two children's books on science. Have you found the experience of communicating science to kids similar in some ways to making data tangible in non-conventional ways? Oh, yeah. It's, it's all about communication. Like I said, the idea of just pulling out a different tool from your tool belt in order to do the job right. And I love talking with kids. You just get the best questions. Um, and the best points of views when you're working with kids. And yeah, it's been, I think, just exciting to be able to try different things over the course of my career and to be able to write books for grownups or kids. It's just it's just another means of expression that I'm I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to do. 2020 has been a really strange year. This is 
a year in which we're all trying to communicate information and ideas and emotions in ways that are really not typical to a lot of our experiences and expectations. But that's really like what you've been doing, what you've been practicing for a pretty long time. I'm wondering if those lessons have been helpful for you this year. I think so. I mean, and it could be this project coming out this year and the response that we had to it. It's possible that some of that response, some of which was really quite emotional and amazing, is partly due to the fact that we are just a distributed network right now. We have to be separate these days. And when you are physically separate, I think humans might crave some of the things that make you feel a little bit less separate or a little bit less alone. And if you're able to listen to the universe and consider your larger environment in a new way, you know, perhaps it just either distracts you for a brief amount of time or makes you feel part of something bigger than just the large problems that Earth has faced in 2020, or at least that's the hope. And if, and if we've been able to provide that, well, I mean, what could be better than that? That's Kimberly Arcand. She's a data visualization scientist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And she was part of a team that recently built sonifications of space data from telescopes, including the Chandra X-ray Observatory. And you can hear those compositions at chandra.si.edu. Kimberly Arcand, thank you. Thank you. This was really fun. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>